Father God, we thank you for this time where we can gather together in your name. I'm, I'm amazed, Lord, at how you see us, especially when we wake up each morning and look in the mirror and, and see us, see ourselves for, for what we are and who we are. And, and, and Lord, lots of times that is a conflict to us in regards to who you say we are in you, righteous and holy, justified. You see us without any spot or blemish, Lord, as your sons and daughters. And Lord, we thank, we're thankful for that, that we can come under your banner of grace into your, into your um, covenant through the blood of your son Jesus that makes us new and makes all things new. And so I pray, Lord, this morning that as we study your word and look at the life of Moses and, and who he was and what you called him to do and who he was in you, I pray, God, that you would help us to see with clarity today, more clarity today, just who we are in you, the plan that you have for our lives and the good works that you want to do in us and through us. Works, God, that your word tells us that you've ordained us for, predestined us for, set before us so that we may walk in them. And, and the blessings that are attached to these things, Lord, when we walk in the things that you've called us to. I know, Lord, that we all have fears and failures and and, and, and reasons, God, that bring discouragement and doubt into our lives. And I pray that those things would be set aside today and that we would be renewed through your word, by your spirit, and to go forth, Lord, in your power and in your strength, no matter um, what stands before us. I'm even reminded of the message this weekend at the conference I was at, Lord, where <coughs> he spoke to Zerubbabel and told him, Lord, that... Um, that the mountains that are before him will be brought down to his feet as he rests in your strength and power and goes forward in your power and your might. And Lord, for those mountains that are in our lives, um, I pray, God, that you would bring them down. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Genesis chapter, or Exodus chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert. And he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, verse 3, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. You know, I think, I think the whole crux of this account really hinges on verse 3. And, and I want to point out some things there, and you might want to underline it as we can highlight it, whatever you do to come back to it, because it's, it's a significant verse where Moses would say, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. And so when the Lord, verse 4, saw that he turned aside to look, <coughs> God called him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, verse 7, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry, because I know of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, and to a place 
of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come now there, come now, verse 10, therefore, and I, he says, will send you to Pharaoh. And, and I imagine up to this point, uh, Moses was on board. <laughs> and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people to the children of Israel out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he said, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people up out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, they say to me, What is his name, and what shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, verse 15, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. Then they will heed, verse 18, your voice, and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt, and you shall say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now, please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give the people, <coughs> I will give this people favor in the sight of Egypt, and it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty-handed. Verse 22, but every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothes, and clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and your daughters, and so you shall plunder the Egyptians. If you've been here as we've been studying through the opening chapters of this book, the first two chapters, only two chapters really up to this point, you know that, um, that during this, these two chapters, a total of 400 years up to now have been accounted for. And um, in doing so, the stage for these events that we're now reading in chapter 3 has really been rapidly set. I mean, all of a sudden, it's kind of like God said, here, this is what's happened, and this is where we're at, and now... Here, this is where we're going. And, 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 and the things are going to kind of slow down for us, if you will, from this point going forward as Moses now really is brought onto the scene in the role of deliverer. And, and from the first two chapters, what we know, what we've been given so rapidly, so quickly, what we've learned is that Jacob and his sons 
<coughs> had left the land of Canaan, the one that the Lord is saying that he's now going to take them back to, matter of fact, the one that the Lord had promised to take them back to, that he and his sons had left the land of Canaan. They went to dwell in the land of Egypt because there was that severe famine in the land, a famine that was lasting or going to last for seven years. In fact, they had even been invited. They had been invited by Pharaoh to come live in Egypt where there was still food, and they were given the land of Goshen, we were told. As, and it was an honor. It was an honor to Joseph. That was the reason for why um, Jacob and his family were, were invited in. And Joseph was one of Jacob's 12 sons, and he had earned Pharaoh's favor um, through some wisdom that God had given him and saved Egypt from this time of famine. And we know that the bigger picture here was it was to be a refuge during that time for the children of Israel, for Jacob and his descendants. And that refuge, that time, extended well beyond those seven years. As a matter of fact, from the first two chapters, we know that it was a total of nearly 400 years before the children of Israel um, who had entered in would, would be, be delivered out. But during that time, Jacob's descendants, the children of Israel, increased abundantly, we're told. As a matter of fact, we're told that they grew exceedingly mightily, mighty. However, there came a time when the memory of Joseph had faded from Egypt, and a new pharaoh rose into a power, it says, who, do not, who did not know him, and he looked upon the Hebrew people who had grown mighty, who had increased, and he became fearful. He believed that they would use their strength, their might, their power to turn against the Egyptian people. And so the oppression that we're reading about here now in chapter 3, which God saw, which God responded to, was a result of this pharaoh um, bringing evil upon God's people. And bringing them into slavery, into, into hard bondage, and even um, giving command to kill the firstborn sons, or the sons, if you, uh, not just the firstborn, but any son, any newborn son that was, was born to the Hebrew people. And um, this evil that Pharaoh was bringing to God's, against God's people, we have to keep in mind, we have to look at it through this lens, is, is that it was being worked together for good. Okay, just like, much, just like what God does in our own lives, is that God takes these things that are unfavorable or evil that comes across or comes against us, and, and it cannot separate us from the love of God, and then God, in turn, works that to good. And God was working these things to his good and for his glory and for his people. And as God, during that time, not only continued to strengthen his people in, in, during that oppression, they, they, weren't, uh, they, they continued to prosper in, in many, many ways, and, and, and during that time, this additional 40-year period of time, total of 80 years actually, from the time when Moses was born, we see that God was preparing, we talked about that last week, that God was preparing a deliverer to come to them. And this deliverer, whom we now read about in chapter 3, was Moses. And keep in mind, Moses, even though he's raised in an Egyptian household, was a Hebrew man. A man through a set of, set of God-ordained circumstances or events Ended up being raised in Pharaoh's house. Ended up being educated, we're told, in all of the wisdom of the Egyptians. And rose to a place where he became powerful, not only in the words he spoke, but in the things he did. Powerful in word and in deed. Yet, when God first appeared to Moses, which we read about at the end of, of last week's chapter, um, that, that, that when he first um, um, opened Moses' eyes to see the burdens of his people and touch Moses' heart or stirred Moses' heart to then to do something about it. Well, he knows that Moses ran ahead of God. 
And often we do the same things. We've, we've, we talked about that, where we, in our zeal, uh, uh, God stirs our heart. We, we go forward in our own strength, in our own might, and even in, in our own pride as we really look at it in that way to see that we go forward in a way that seems right to us. And that's what Moses did. He reacted to these things uh, rather than being led by God, and consequently we know that he ended up murdering an Egyptian. It says that he looked this way, and he looked that way, and then he went ahead and laid hands on this Egyptian taskmaster, killed him, and then buried his body in an, attempt, in an attempt to try to hide what had been done. But you know the story. Moses was found out. And he fled from Egypt when he was found out in order to save his life. And he went to dwell in the land of Midian. And now as we rejoin this story, as we come to chapter 3, um, we know that Moses had lived in the land of Midian up to this point for another or for an additional 40 years. And, and he was a shepherd, shepherding the flocks of his father-in-law, Jethro. But, but during those 40 years, one of the things that we need to take note of that we've been told here in this chapter is, is that things continued to get worse or at least continue as they had been with the children of Israel in that they continued to suffer because of their bondage. And at the end of chapter 2, as we transitioned into this account that we read of now, we're told that their cry came up to God, that he heard their groaning, he remembered his covenant that had been made with them, and he looked upon the children of Israel and acknowledged them. And in doing so, we see that God moves, that God moved to deliver his people by now appearing to Moses. The angel of the Lord came, and it called him, God called him to go back to Egypt and to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt and back into the land of Canaan, a, 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 a promised land, a land flowing, it says, with milk and honey. But even though 40 years had passed, and even though the Hebrew people were still suffering, what we see here is that Moses was opposed, was he not? Moses was opposed to God's call <coughs> and to God's plan because it included him. So really it was an opposition to God's call and to God's plan for Moses' life. And so as we look back to the beginning of this chapter, verse 1 of chapter 3, it tells us that this God encounter that Moses experienced took place at a specific place, at Horeb, we're told, the mountain of God, a place where God would would call Moses to and say, take off your sandals, this is a holy place, holy ground. And this mountain, which is also called in, in other places of Scripture, Mount Sinai, as you guys might be also familiar with, it would become an important place for Moses and for the children of Israel. As it was the same place that God would gather his people to, as God said, this will be a sign to you, Moses, is that, that I will bring these people with you back to this very place, to this mountain. And in doing so, God would make a new covenant with them, one that we refer to now as the Mosaic Covenant, a, a covenant where God called his people out before he took them into the promised land and said to them, listen, I will be your God and you will be my people. And in giving him that covenant, we know that Moses was called back to this mountain, up to the top of the mountain where he met with God and received God's law, the commands of God. We see it as the Ten Commandments, but it was, it was much more than that. It was, a, it, was a, it was a covenantal binding thing. 
But as we begin to look at this first encounter, we need to keep in mind that when the angel of the Lord first appeared to Moses in the flame of fire from the midst of the bush, the thing that I think is significant for us to take note of here is, is that Moses, according to verse 1, was doing nothing different than what he had been doing for the last 40 years. Doing nothing different than what he had been doing for the last 40 years. In fact, this was the path he was on that had taken him by this mountain perhaps hundreds of times. A path he had previously traveled on as he led his flocks, it says, to the back of the desert. So, really, on a normal day, in a very familiar place, while doing a very routine thing, God appeared. God appeared to Moses and showed him something he had never seen before. A bush, it says, that had been set on fire but was not being consumed. And I, and I point these things out because for us, we need to see that God will and God does interrupt our everyday lives, which can seem to us at times to be also ordinary or very routine. And he'll interrupt our lives in order to do extraordinary things in us and through us. And this is the first thing that we see here. God interrupting Moses' life to do something extraordinary in him and through him. But when God appears to us and he shows us something that's out of the ordinary in order to get our attention, what verse 3 teaches us is that we must be willing to be interrupted. In other words, we must be willing to stop what we are doing those important things of our life, of our days, in order to see and investigate what God is doing. We must be willing to stop what we are doing in order to see and investigate the things that God is doing. And we cannot be so consumed with the busyness of life, with the tasks of everyday life, so that we miss out on the things that God has waiting for us. Remember in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9, it tells us that a, man, a man's heart plans his way. We wake up in the morning, we run through the list of things that we know that we got to do, whether it's at home with our families or, or, or at work or the things at the end of the day we know that will still have to be done, that, are, that, 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 that we, 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 we know have to be done. We, we plan our way. But it tells us, as the psalmist goes on, verse 9, that a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And the truth is, is often our plans and the, and the, and the directing of God in regards to moving our feet down a particular path can often come into a place of conflict. Where we see God directing our steps as an inconvenience to the plans that we've made in our heart. But what we see in this story and what we learn here is that we can trust that in directing our steps that God has a far better plan for our days, a far better plan for our lives than any plan we can make on our own. And without a doubt, this was the case for Moses who had been tending Jethro's sheep, his father-in-law, as God was now calling him to stop that, to cease that, and to go back to Egypt. 
and to demand in his name, in the name of God, that Pharaoh set the Hebrew people free from their bondage and free from their oppression. And that may seem somewhat untangible and unrelatable to us, because God may not set such a large task before us. But I'm here to tell you that he will interrupt the plans of our day. He will interrupt the plans that we have for our lives for these reasons. So that we might see and help someone who is in need. Someone who needs the good news. Someone who is broken hearted. Or someone who is held captive by their sin, by their fear, or by their shame. And I know this to be true because this was the mission statement of Jesus, was it not? Who said in, in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, he said, The Spirit of the Lord is, is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and to recover the sight of the blind, and to set to liberty or to set free those who are oppressed. And our days are filled with people like this, is it not? And this is the same mission that God interrupts our lives for today and calls us to be a part of on a daily basis. Now, when God interrupted Moses' day, we see in verse 3, we see his willingness. And maybe at first it was just um, an interest to see something unexplainable. And, you know, and that's, that's good enough. When we notice something and we go, that's unusual, that's not a normal thing, what we're really saying is, is that's not a man thing, that's a God thing, and I'm going to go investigate to see what that is. This is where Moses is at. And he was willing to turn from the thing that he was doing, tending the sheep, leading his flock to the back of the desert in order to see what God was doing, to see why the bush that was burning was not, on, why the bush that was on fire was not burning. Yet when God took really this insignificant thing, an, an, an everyday kind of thing, right? When God took this insignificant bush, and when God lit it on fire and prevented it from burning, he was turning it into a miracle. And in doing this miracle, doing a God thing, something supernatural, something that wasn't normal, God was giving Moses an example of what he wanted to do with him. That's the meaning or the message of the burning bush. In how or in that, God was going to reveal His power. God who, is, it says, is an all-consuming fire. His power in and through Moses in spite of Moses' weaknesses. And this was something that Moses needed to see. This was a lesson that Moses needed to learn. It was something that we need to see. It's a lesson that we need to learn. Because we see that Moses would resist, right? And, and this resisting really continues on into chapter 4. We're not going to get to that this morning. We may touch on it. But, but Moses was resisting God's call and God's plan for his life. Why? Because he was focused on his weakness. Actually, he was focused on his weaknesses, plural. Rather on God, whose power and whose might is limitless. But even in seeing this power of God through this miracle, we see that Moses doubted. Even though it was before him, and God was speaking to him, Moses doubted. 
He doubted this. He doubted how he could even accomplish anything, even with God's help. And so Moses, he stood before this demonstrations of God, this demonstration of God's power. He stood before this example of what God was going to do through him and in him. And in verse 4, it says this. It says that God saw that Moses turned aside to look and that he called to him from the bush. And these words that Moses heard God speaking, telling him first in verse 6 that he was the God of his, of his fathers, of his forefathers, and that he had seen the oppression of his people who were in Egypt, and, and, and that now the time had come for them to be delivered out of Egypt and led into the promised land. I'm sure that these were words that Moses would have been rejoicing in. He'd be like, go God, yeah, that sounds like a good plan. That needs to be taken care of. However, when the Lord continued to speak in verse 10, and he said that he was going to send him, that he was going to send Moses to do this thing, it's clear that any rejoicing that Moses may have been doing was immediately replaced. It was replaced with astonishment. It was replaced with fear and doubt. For why would God choose to send a failure like Moses? Why would God choose to send a failure like Moses? And and these aren't my words. These are the words of Moses. Because this is exactly what Moses was thinking when he answered God and said in verse 11, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? But often, guys, these are the words that we find ourselves saying. These are words that I've said. Words that I've heard many of you say when you've seen God doing a thing and God says, you're going to be a part of this thing or you see a need because God's opened your eyes to that need and you go, who am I to serve in children's ministry? Who am I? Fill in the blank. And I want to address this real quick because perhaps there are some who think that we should give Moses a little credit here, right? Who am I? And recognize that by the statement that Moses appears to have learned some humility during these 40 years of herding sheep. And, I, and, and no doubt he did. He was a different guy than he was 40 years previously. But I point this out. Because I believe the same conversation had taken place while Moses was still living in Pharaoh's house. If God had come to him while he was living in Pharaoh's house and gave him this plan, it's likely that Moses would have answered God by telling him just who he was. Not asking this question of who I am, but but telling him who he was and what a good choice God had made by sending him considering he had been educated in all the wisdom of Egypt, and and now he was in this place where he had power in word and in deed. But guys, I'm here to tell you that the fact of the matter is, is what Moses thought of himself wasn't important. And this apparent humility that Moses was now expressing was really a false humility. 
And it is the same in our own lives. A false humility that is evident as we see how Moses continued to question God's call as we read on and and continued to point to his own weaknesses rather than just simply submitting to God's plan for his life. In light of this, we we need to see, we got to see that true humility isn't having a low opinions of oneself. And lots of times we think um, um, pride or a lack of humility is when we elevate ourselves like we had seen Moses do previously. But true humility isn't thinking about ourselves at all. It's not thinking lowly of yourself. It's not thinking about yourself at all. And in this, at that place, in that spot, is when we willingly submit to God's plan and will for our lives. Humility is submitting to God. And the fact of the matter is, is whatever Moses thought of himself or, or even what others thought of Moses as well was not important. For when God said, if you look there in verse 10, that he was sending Moses, it should have been all the assurance that he needed to know that he was the right man for the job. If God makes a need known to you, if God lays it on your heart to turn and look at this thing, and he's called you, the fact that he has chosen you for the job is all the assurance that we should need in a place of humility, in a life that's lived in humility, to know that God's choosing the right person, that he's not made a mistake, that he knows what he's doing. But what we see is that Moses doubted. And why did he doubt? The same reason we often doubt, because he looked at himself. He looked at himself rather than looking to God by faith. Nevertheless, as God does often with us, God graciously answered Moses in verse 12. And he assured Moses that he would be with him. Don't worry, Moses. I know what you're like. But I'm going to be with you. And when it comes to the things that God calls us to, We need to remember that the most important thing isn't who we are. The most important thing is for us to know that God is with us. In John chapter 15, verse 5, it really reminds us of this in the the words of Jesus as he talks about the vine and the branches and abiding in him in order to bear fruit. And what he tells us in that that account is, is that without him, we can do what? We can do nothing. Furthermore, this is, this is is that we should know not only that we can do nothing, but that we can do everything as He strengthens us. We can do nothing without Him, but we can do everything as He strengthens us. And this is what Moses would come to know. This is what God wanted to reveal to him as God spoke to him of exactly who he was. And yeah, this, was, this door was opened up as Moses continued to ask another question. But as you look at verse 13 and we go on down through verse 22, we see that um, all that really mattered for the mission that, that God was sending Moses to do was that God was with him. That was all that really mattered. And if that was all that really mattered, then we should look at at, at Moses' words in verse 13 and see that his next question was really an appropriate question. There are other really inappropriate ones that really 
questioned God and challenged God in a, in, a, in, a, in a wrong way. But this question was an appropriate question. If God was with Moses, then Moses should what? He should go, then who are you, God? And if we know that God is with us, we want to know who God is. Who is with us? Because if Moses was really being sent as God's representative, then he had to be able to make God's character known to the Jewish people. And God doesn't send us, God doesn't call us in his power, in his strength, to make us known to someone God calls us in his power and his strength in order that he might be made known through us. And this is where Moses was at at this point. Furthermore, if these people, if the Hebrew people, if the children of Israel were going to follow Moses, who came in the name of God out of Egypt and into the promised land, then they too should want or expect to have this assurance that God, that the Lord, had been the one to send Moses on the mission. In other words, when someone comes into your life and they, says that, and they say to you that they're from God, it should, it, should, it should make sense then that they should be able to tell you who God is. Who it is who has sent him. They should know God. And if someone comes speaking to us in the name of God and come speaking the will of God or the words of God into our lives, that person better know God. So even though God had already told Moses that he was the God of his father, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, back in verse 6, it clear that, it's clear to us that Moses, who had heard, you know, there's a big difference between hearing of somebody and knowing somebody, but it's clear that Moses had heard of his father's God. But yet, at this point, he did not yet know him. And so when he asked God in verse 13 what God's name is, he was really asking to know the person and the character of God. Because who a person is and their character is often attached to their name. And that's how God has made himself known, through his name. In other words, Moses was asking this question, what kind of God are you? I want to know you. And God answered Moses in verse 14, and and he said to him, I am who I am. And just because it's in capital letters, like some of us do when we're texting, doesn't mean that God was now yelling at Moses because he was frustrated. It's in capital letters because it's a title. It's It's a name that God has communicated to us, which reveals to us his person and his nature. And he went on to say, and you shall say to the children of Israel, simply this, I am has sent you, has sent me to you. And by this one statement, guys, God was revealing the most important thing about himself to Moses. And it was the fact that he is the self-existent one. What does that mean? One who always was one who always is, and one who will always be. And in that name, and in that understanding, the faithfulness of God, the dependability of God, who calls himself I am, is revealed. And in this one name, the strength of God, the sovereignty of God, and the goodness of God is all contained. Now the Hebrew word here for this name of God that is used, it's the, name, it's the word Yahweh. 
And our English conversion for this word, for this name of God, is the word Jehovah. It's the same Hebrew and in our English conversion. And, and, and strictly speaking, this is the only proper name given for God in all of the Bible. It's the only proper name. Furthermore, it's the personal covenant name of Israel's God. And if you do a word search, you're going to see that this name, Jehovah or Yahweh, is used about 6,800 times in Scripture. And even though there are other surnames that are used in conjunction with the name of Jehovah to describe the person and the nature of God, such as the name Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide, the self-existent one, the eternal one will provide, and Jehovah Rapha, which means the Lord who heals and others like that, we know that when Jesus came, guys, that when Jesus came, he took the name I am, and he completed it for us. He completed it for us. And the book of John documents this with the seven I am statements of Jesus that he made in reference to himself. Saying these things. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the true vine. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, and I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we know that Scripture tells us that Jesus is the expressed image of God. That when we've seen Jesus, we have seen the Father. But as we look back to our text in here in the book of Exodus, we see that in identifying, in identifying himself, himself to Moses as this I am the, literally the, the eternal God who knows what this means, the end from the beginning, right? As Moses is, 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 is spoken to by God and God communicates this truth about who he is, his character and his person, what we read through the rest of this chapter is that God then went on to tell Moses exactly what would happen. And if he is the eternal God, the self-existent one, it reasons to assume then that he knows the beginning from the end. And so God said to Moses in verses 16 through 22, he assured him and he said that the elders would accept him. He said, Moses, I'm the self-existent one. I am the great I am. And I know what's going to happen. You're going to go there and the elders are going to accept you as their leader. And they're going to believe that God is going to deliver them. He also told him this. He said that the king of Egypt would resist God's message to set his people free and that he would in turn suffer severe judgments of God. But God also said that his work would be done and that the children of Israel through his mighty hand would be delivered from the land and that, they, and that when they, they would leave, it's kind of like the icing on the cake. He said that when you leave, you're not going to leave empty-handed. He said that the Egyptians will willingly be plundered by you and hand over their articles of gold and silver and clothes for you to go out with. And perhaps, guys, upon hearing these things, Perhaps it seemed too good to be true to Moses. And perhaps when God speaks things to our lives, 
unbelief creeps in because we don't see or we can't imagine that kind of good thing, that kind of plan, that God's kind of will for our lives. Because we read in chapter 4, we're not going to get into this this morning too much, but in chapter 4, we're told about three additional statements that Moses made. And the thing for us to notice is that these three statements, which we're going to go into greater detail next week, that these three statements were statements that Moses was speaking in order to attempt to escape or walk away for God's plan for his life. Look there quickly with me, if you will, saying first in verse 1, he said, they're not going to believe me. That's, blind, that's mind-blowing to me at this point, until I begin to apply it to my own life. And what I mean by that is, is these times of my day, of my life, where I, 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 I'm walking down the same path that I may have walked down before, going this way, going that way, doing this thing, doing that thing, and God puts a burning bush, figuratively speaking, in front of me, one that's not consuming being consumed by the fire. In other words, it's a God thing. God grabs my attention. And rather than stopping to see what God has for me, I keep going about the tasks of my day. And I relate that to this because the truth is, like you, I already know who God is. And I know through Scripture and through a life that's been lived with God for a while that when God interrupts my life, and when God directs my life and gets my attention to do a specific thing, that that thing that God has for me, that plan, that purpose, that will that God has for me is far better than the thing that I have planned in my heart to do that day. And truly, in that moment, in that time, I'm like Moses, and I try to escape, and I try to walk away from God's plan for my life because I say these things. They're not going to believe me. Even though God has shown me, God has spoken to me, something completely different. So we speak these unbelievable things out of our unbelief. God's not going to believe me when God's just told us contrary to that. But you know what, this was, this was nothing more, this, this, this statement of, hey, they're not going to believe me. You know what it was? It was nothing more than a statement of Moses' own unbelief. And what was Moses really saying? God, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. I don't believe these things that you've just told me are true. And in declaring this, Moses went, would go on to do something that we may do as well. We go on to give God advice. God, I don't, I don't believe you, but you might try this other thing. And he began to give God advice on what a mistake he was making by sending him. Why? Because Moses will say, I'm not eloquent. I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. I'm not your guy, God. You may have a good plan. You may have a good purpose. But I don't believe that this is going to happen because I'm in the equation. I'm going to mess it up. And when these things that Moses spoke did not deter God, we then will read in chapter 4, verse 13 this. We'll read how Moses continued to resist God's will 
and even pleaded with God, please God, he says, send someone else. I don't want to go too far into the account and the story for, for next week, but this is what God does. God doesn't let Moses completely off the hook, but he brings his brother Aaron into the scene. And God says, okay, Moses, you're not off the hook, but I'm going to allow the, for this thing. And God, in a sense, gives Moses what he wants. And I'm here to tell you guys, that's a scary place to be. Where you resist God, where you plead with God, where you try to counsel God, when he's spoken his will to our lives, when he's interrupted our lives and shown us this, this God thing that, that, that draws our attention and we continue to walk on by and we, we argue with God as we're walking on by or maybe even hours down the road. When even the, the, the and I've done this, this is why I'm talking about it, even when the opportunity is no longer there, I'm still speaking to God all these reasons for why I did not stop and look at the bush that was burning. And when God finally relents to my will a little bit, like he did here for Moses, it never goes well. It never goes well. And it didn't go well for Moses with Aaron. And we'll get to read about that further on. Guys, I'm going to end with that because I really want us to take this time to, prayer because, to pray because I think one of the things that we need to be praying about is, is, is exactly how we see ourselves in relationship of who God says and sees us to be. Because obviously Moses had a wrong view of who he was and what he could be in God. And I believe that often what holds us back in, the, in receiving the fullness of the life that God wants for us to live is our own weaknesses, our own shortcomings, our own failures in where we focus on those things and will not submit to the plan and will and purpose that God has for our lives. Justin, if you want to come up and Rich, one of the things that I learned this week in one of the Bible teachings that I was speaking about is it begins, there's this passage of Scripture that talks about these strongholds that take hold of our lives. And what the guy was speaking about in regards to these strongholds is that these strongholds are usually lies. And, 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 and when we are told a lie or when we believe a lie, what we do then is, is we begin to look at things around us through that lens, through that distortion, through that warped truth or that warped reality, which is not truth. And, 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 and I think one of the strongholds that, that take hold of our lives is what we see here going on with Moses that, 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 that prevents us from seeing things for what they really are is a lie about what the enemy tells us or what our heart tells us, what I've been talking about, about what God sees us and how God sees us, who we are in Him. And I think in doing so, we often miss out on the good things that God has for us. We miss out on serving in a place in the church where God may be drawing us to serve. We may miss out on the opportunity to really make a, a difference in the lives of a family member or in the lives of a co-worker as we're, as we're stepping into that place, that mission statement that Jesus gave as he came to this earth and said, listen, I've come to bring the good news. 
to heal the brokenhearted, to set those who are captive free. And God, God invites us into, and we hold back and we resist because we don't see ourselves as equipped or qualified enough to do that. But yet God says the complete different. He says, you are my son. You are my daughter. You can do all things through me. I will strengthen you. I have called you. I have given you purpose. And this is the thing that God has called us to while He leaves us here waiting on His return. So I would encourage you this morning, if you have this perception about yourself that's an ungodly perception, you don't see yourself in the way that God says that you are, I would call you and encourage you to come forward also in prayer this morning to receive that strengthening, to break down that stronghold in your life with the truth that God says. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time that we have together to, do, to come to your word, which, which takes away lies, Lord, that convicts us in our heart to seek the truth, Lord, to, to accept it and to receive it, that makes known to us who you are and who we are in you. And Lord, as we look at Moses, this great man who you called, Lord, and, and, and we look at and, and, and look back with really, God, a heart of um, a fond heart on who Moses was and what he did and, 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 and look at him and elevate him, Lord, to a place of honor and, and, and to, to uh, a place where we esteem him as one of the, 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 the fathers, Lord, of, of the Jewish people who you used in a mighty and awesome way. God, we see that he was flawed just like us. And we see, God, that in, in you he was more than enough to do everything that you called him to do. And I pray, God, that we would receive that this morning, that in you, that we're more than enough to do everything that you've called us to do. Lord, and it doesn't have to be something as great as leading the children of Israel out of the promised land, Lord, because the thing is, you've called us to be fathers and mothers, husbands and wives, friends, neighbors, co-workers. And God, as you've placed those calls in our lives, I pray, God, that we would live up to that call knowing, Lord, that you've equipped us to do the work that you've set before us in each thing. That when we're right with you, God, we'll be right in those other areas of our lives. And so, Lord, as we set this time aside now to continue to worship you and, and to, to come in prayer to you, I pray, God, that we would humble ourselves before you we wouldn't think highly of ourselves and that we wouldn't think lowly of ourselves, Lord, and try to dismiss the thing that you've put before us to go and do. Lord, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name.